Hello, everybody. How are you? Good afternoon. Or, well, yeah, good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to Genealogy Adventures. I'm Brian Sheffy and my wonderful co host, Donya Williams. Hey. So, hey. So, thank you once again for joining us on this Sunday. Hope all of you are well. So today, very, very pleased to introduce um, a woman that I had the pleasure of meeting a few years ago. Her name is Phoebe Hayes. She's she used to be the professor and dean of the College of General Studies at the University of Louisiana at Lafayette. She has been a longtime researcher um, in Louisiana. She's a charter member of the Iberian African American Historical Society. And she also is a member of, and I'm, I've been practicing this because I really don't want to slaughter it, but my French is pretty bad. Le Comité de de la Louisiane. You going to grade me on that? Me? I said, are you going to grade me on my pronunciation? I didn't realize I was on. Because <laughs> 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 I probably butcher it sometimes too. <laughs> You're doing well. Oh, so a very big and hearty welcome to you, Phoebe. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Um, and one of the reasons why Donnie and I are so excited to kind of have to have you on the show is because Louisiana is a fascinating place. 2017 was the first time that I had ever visited there, fell in love with it, had my first proper po' boy, which Phoebe will tell you I was beaming from ear to ear. <laughs> it was a snowball. <laughs> true. Those were really good. Those were really good too. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I have to say that even though I was there for a day, um, and that wonderful that wonderful um, seminar sessions that that lasted that day, I came away with because I didn't know anything about Louisiana really kind of its history or in terms of genealogy, wow. and it's such a wonderful, wonderfully complex, multi layered place because it has that deep, deep history you know, realizing that you kind of have to know Spanish, you have to know French, you have to know English. Louisiana has a completely different judicial system, kind of history. It's one of the oldest colonies really um, on the North America, that part, this part of North America, which is such a deep, deep history. You know, slavery happened there before it happened anywhere else in what we, what we consider North uh, United States. And, um, I was just really blown away. You had such wonderful speakers and I just learned, learned so much. Um, and like I said, Louisiana just kind of fascinated me. So how did you kind of, how did you get into genealogical research? Well, as you said, I mean, I, I, I'm an academic by training. Um, and so that means that I, I've grown up, so to speak. I've been trained to do research and um, so that's one layer of it. But the earlier part of my story begins with me growing up in this community in Louisiana, in New Iberia, Louisiana, surrounded by different generations of my family who told stories, who talked about the, uh, the old people, the ancestors, and how they lived. And I was even able to, because I'm 64, and I was even able to see a little bit of those old ways that I can kind of remember, like I kind of remember my grand, my paternal grandparents, for example, going to church in a horse and a, a, a not a buggy, but um, an old wagon. And my grandfather would take his mules that he would work all during the week in the sugarcane fields that he had. 
and then they would go to go to go to church. So a little bit of the old ways. And so I was fascinated by some of those those old customs and 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 and, and, and actions, behaviors. But I heard stories coming up from my grandparents about what life was like, especially during the Jim Crow era. And a little bit of what their parents and grandparents told them about the slavery period. And so as when I retired from the university, I just started to, to, to research some of those, uh, those stories to see if I could find primary records that would, uh, that would confirm what I grew up hearing. Some of the stories I grew up hearing were not very pretty. They were not very pretty at all. These were very difficult times, especially for African-Americans, um, and especially if they were poor, which many were, and if they didn't speak English, if they were mostly French speakers, it was even more difficult. So, yeah, so my, my taste for research of, this, of, of, of my family and of the region was kind of kindled early in my development. Excellent. So you have just recently started a, a fairly new uh, research group, the, like I said, the Iberia African-American Historical Society, and yes. thought it would be a good opportunity to kind of uh, fill us in about that and the work that you guys are doing. Thank you. I'm beaming because it's one of the, um, the, um, the success stories that we have that we can point to. Uh, but for me to, to explain the importance of this organization, if I may, I want to explain how, how it came about. Mm -hmm. I retired in 2013, roughly. I was doing some volunteer work in the library, which has a genealogy room. This library is not too far from where I live. And um, uh, there was a book, which is what started me. I began to see problems. And there was a book in the library, and one of many such, well, I shouldn't say many, but one of several such books I discovered later on that described the history of uh, our area, but it excluded Blacks. So for example, this first book that I found, uh, described, it was entitled roughly The Great Physicians of Iberia Parish from 1859 to 1959. And all the doctors were white and they were all male. So that was a problem for me because one, I grew up in downtown New Iberia, a block away from Dr. George Diggs who had just died, well, like in 2012, I think it was. and I knew that 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 book was was it was it was it was full of lies. So I also grew up hearing my grandparents talk about their wonderful black doctors of the 1930s and 1940s who had been beaten and thrown out of Iberia Parish in 1944. And um, they loved those doctors. My paternal grandparents lost a child early on. And I actually, and, and, and that was very painful for them still. And you got to understand my grandparents, those paternal grandparents died. Well, the father died in his 60s, but my paternal grandmother died when she was about 100. So her memories were very vivid of the, the, the times that they lived in back then. Dr. Uh, Spogans and Dr. Dorothy, I grew up hearing about just about all my life from those elders in my family. And they, they loved them. They, 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 you know, they still thought of them often and they told the stories of how they were beaten and thrown out of New Iberia. So when I retired and, and I saw this silly book, I decided to go and do some research. And so far I found over 21 black doctors associated with Iberia Parish from, wow. from the time that wow. from the um, reconstruction era all the way to the end of the Jim Crow period. 
Mm. Which in New Iberia was roughly ended, Jim Crow roughly ended around 1970, 1969, 1970. Mm. So what happened to the black doctors? Well, did they not exist and were my grandparents making up stories? No, they existed. But these Jim Crow relics that still are housed in public spaces that taxpayers pay for, they're still there. And they still um, uh, tell the story of professionals like doctors. And they tell, they basically suggest that blacks were not part of that. You know, so they wiped out the history of black physicians. And uh, now all the black doctors I found did not all practice here. Of the 20 plus black doctors I found who are associated with Iberia Parish, um, maybe 15 actually practiced in the parish over the years. Um, we actually found as another, um, uh, you know, kind of happy um, discovery, we found out that the first black woman to actually practice medicine in the state of Louisiana grew up here in New Iberia. And, uh, and she graduated from um, the, um, what is now Dillard University in New Orleans, but at the time it was straight college and then she ran on to New Orleans University, which had a medical school which became Flint Medical School. She graduated in 1897, first black woman to graduate in the state in medicine. And then she graduated with honors. And then she went on and took the, the medical examiner's board exam. And she did so well that she, that she had she, uh, earned special mention in their minutes because of her performance. Remember, she's the only woman and the only um, woman of color, for sure. There were three other, I think, Blacks in the room. And these were Black male uh, students that she graduated with. And she passed with flying colors. Wow. And in a way, it's just such a shame because for just any woman of that period to graduate from medical school and be, and be accepted and treated as a professional is difficult enough. But, you know, for a Black, for you know, someone who is a descendant of slaves to achieve that so early on, you would think that, that everyone would want to celebrate that. Well, you know, it's interesting because at that period, if you Google her and her name was Dr. Emma, Wakefield, and then she married a gentleman from uh, the area, from Opelousas, Louisiana. His name was, his last name was Paye. And some people would say Paylet, but mm -hmm. it's P-A-I-L-L-E-T. So she married this gentleman. And if you Google her, you'll find, and you look at newspapers.com or Chronicling America, you'll see lots of newspaper articles that were written about her. And some of them, they were, them were incorrect. Some of them stated that she was the first black woman or they said negress or a colored woman to graduate with a medical degree in the United States. Well, that wasn't correct. She was one of those early ones, but she was not the first. I think Dr. Rebecca Crumpton was the first. So, but, um, so she was hailed, even in Europe, there were articles, newspaper articles that were written about. It was not so much about her graduating as much as her taking the state medical examination, passing it and passing it at such a, a high level that they marveled at. So, you know, so there was a tension. It's just that over the years, Brian and Danya, that history, her history has been lost for some reason. And uh, I have a colleague, a colleague, a, a friend in New Orleans who I credit with, with you know, informing me of Dr. Wakefield's uh, um, uh, legacy. Um, uh, Jari Honoré, 
who is a genealogist from uh, New Orleans, he has a wonderful blog called Creogen. And he wrote a, a blog post about these early black women physicians. The only thing is, he at the time when he did his research, he found that Dr. Ella N. Prescott was the first black woman to get a medical degree. Later, when, when I found out that, the, that there was another woman, Dr. Emma Wakefield, Paye, and he wrote about her in his blog, but he just didn't give her the credit because he had not found evidence that she actually practiced medicine. So in that case, he just, he just went with Dr. Prescott and then Dr. Thelma Coffey Bute, who, who came next. Well, I went on and did further research and I found her license. I found, uh, I found an ad that she posted in 1898 announcing that she was relocating her practice to another area in New Orleans. So she went from one place in New Orleans to another and her new office hours. So she had practiced. Then Jari went on and he found evidence of her license that she was given in, uh, in California when she moved to California. So, you know, we've worked together on this, but I give him credit for actually identifying her first and bringing her to, to, to my attention, this new Iberian native. Well, well another, thing that, another thing that um, that is great about New Iberia is that they also connect to the Georgetown 272 project. So, um, yeah, some of the people, they connect there. And that's, some, that's one of the reasons why I'm so excited that you're up here because I'm also a a descendant of the GU272, but I have no idea how to research it. <laughs> well, whatever question will come up, I refer to Judy Riffle, who is the lead genealogist on on, on that GU272 that, that project. Um, and I believe that there are people who are descendants of those people who were sold down the river, so to speak, who live, who are, who are from New Iberia because of the names, but I also understand that we can be tricked by names. Um, I just didn't believe that people stayed in one spot following emancipation, because uh, we have Hawkins and we have Eaglin and, and you know, these names that, that a lot of wears, we have these names in our, in our population. Um, so I'm, I'm, it hasn't been exactly proved that any of the descendants live in New Iberia, but I would be surprised if they did. Oh, okay. A lot of them are on more, they're closer to Baton Rouge area and New Orleans area that they have been able to confirm is what I'm saying. Okay, okay. I'll say something too, Brian, in your introduction, you were talking about the richness of Louisiana and how it can be wonderfully com complex. But sometimes it's that complexity, the, the layers that make Louisiana what it is that aids us in this day and age to be able to trace our, our history. Because um, yes, the French, the Spanish were here, they kept good records, but the Catholic church, which is so uh, integrated in the culture here, the Catholic church kept meticulous records in a lot of cases um, that if, if you know where to search, it makes it easier to find your ancestors if you have Louisiana, especially Southwest Louisiana ancestors. And What's Southwest? What's the Southwest area? Well, we consider ourselves to be Southwest Louisiana. There is a, and I, I should have brought my book in anticipation of this, this, this interview, Father Donald Abair. You've heard of Father Abair's records, right? His books. They are the Southwest, Southwest Louisiana Catholic Church records. I'm probably butchering the title. But Father Abair 
compiled all the records of the Catholic uh, churches in Southwest Louisiana, like where I live, like Iberia Parish, Lafayette, uh, St. Uh, Landry Parish, etc. Those parishes that are the Bayou Country, that are uh, um, west of New Orleans and Baton Rouge. And uh, those records are invaluable because they have not just the records of the Europeans during slavery and the free people of color during slavery. You can also sometimes find the records of people who were enslaved being referred to. You know, um, so those records are very, very important. Um, right after slavery ended, after emancipation, and, and we were required to have last names, there were so many people, I mean, that's an aside, there were so many families that had married following slave customs, so to speak, where they got the owner's permission. They, um, they uh, during Reconstruction, they wanted to they, they wanted to legalize, I guess, their marriages because prior to the end of Reconstruction, the, the slave couples were not allowed to marry, you know, legally. They were property, so they had no legal rights to anything. Okay. So, um, so a lot of those families, including mine, my different family lines, they went and got their marriages um, um, uh, legalized and, 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 and sanctioned by the church in a lot of cases. So you'll find those records in Father Hebert's books. Oh, okay. Actually, the, the Catholic kind of culture may actually add a wrinkle that people may not realize. Mm -hmm. and we were talking about this before that as well as the name that you were probably known by, by your family in your neighborhood, you would either have your confirmation name or you would have your, so you named after a saint. So you would have a whole sex name. Right. Which can make it a little bit challenging when you're doing your genealogy, when you're doing your research, your family history research. I know my ancestors, um, you know, well, in terms of going back several generations, because the grandparents talked about them. That's the advantage of growing up around your grandparents and, and great, even great-grandparents. Um, but what was interesting for me is that even though I, I knew them by name, sometimes their names weren't what I was brought up you know, to believe it was. For example, one of my great-great-grandmothers, and you probably don't remember seeing her picture, Brian, but she was her huge portrait hangs on the wall in the dining room. Uh, my grandmother kept everything, thank goodness. Um, but that huge portrait, and I grew up knowing that she was Valentine. Well, her name was not Valentine. She actually had two other versions of her name. And I'm not sure where Valentine came from. I'm not sure if it was, uh, and she had been a slave too. Um, but she was, um, Valentine could have been a saint name. Yeah. There's a saint, Valentine, and, yeah. and male version of that is Valentine, V-A-L-E-N-T-I-N. Um, but her name, my grandmother referred to her grandmother as Mary Jane, an anglicized version. All the Catholic records refer to her as Marie Jean. Wow. And Marie Jean Gregoire Manuel, because she married my great great grandfather, Alphonse Manuel, who was in the Civil War. That's another story that's, that's just incredible to me. Um, then another one of my great grandmothers I always knew as Fedonia. Well, her name was not Sidonia, according to the church. It was Marie, which is Mary, Sidonie, S-I-D-O-N-I-E, Hippolyte, Hippolyte. So her name, the names, but, but, but after slavery ended, they anglicized a lot. So she became Sidonia. And somewhere along the line, Marie or Mary was dropped off. 
So I'm trying to think, I'm trying to phrase a question in a way that's going to be helpful to the audience. So for someone like me, who mm -hmm. doesn't have a direct link to Louisiana, but indirect one, yeah. I will have to start researching there eventually. Mm -hmm. Would it be advisable to first kind of determine where you're at, what parish your ancestors were living in, and then to look at these church records? It depends on where, where in Louisiana they're from. Right. This area where I live, where the University of Louisiana is, that you did the presentations in two years ago, mm -hmm. this yep. is like more considered to be French-speaking um, Louisiana. I knew I'd bury where I live, which is just 20 plus 30 miles away from UL, from Lafayette, has more of that Spanish influence because the Spaniards founded the city where I, where I live. So the Spanish wow. language was, was more invasive. Yeah. Okay. Well, in, in following with, with what Ryan said, I know that I have connections in in Louisiana. Yes. Outside of, and it's possibly outside of the GU two seventy two. But again, with me, and this is something that I've been trying to figure out. My mother, there's there's a good side of my mom's DNA, mm -hmm. <laughs> and and then there's this bad side. <laughs> That's on you, Brian. You're the, G the DNA expert. <laughs> so, no, this is for you. And, 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 and it, it really, the reason why I'm saying this is because both of my mother's parents come from one spot. Okay. They both come from the same area. And then that actually goes back like two, three generations, maybe even four generations, still in the same area. In Louisiana. Right. And then the next time, it, no, not in Louisiana, in okay. South Carolina. Okay. And then the next time it goes into Virginia. So I have absolutely no clue as to who was in Louisiana. I don't know if it has something to do with the GU-272. I don't know if it's just because, but I know that my mom has lots of Louisiana connections and I have not a clue of where to start. So how can somebody like me, who knows that they have stuff, I can't even pick out a parish. Well, you've done I, you know, I have nothing. You've done your DNA. Yes. So you found all these cousins, these DNA relatives who are Louisiana folks, right? Yes. yes. Okay, so I, I don't know if I have the answer to your question. I know I don't, but this is my comment. I have, and I think I told you that briefly, I have so many relatives who are on the East Coast. I mean, ancestors. My lines kind of lead me to Virginia and uh, North Carolina and a little bit of Maryland and Georgia. And what that tells me is, and that's another thing which I know the genealogists listening to you already know, we've got to understand the history of where we live right. and the history of this country. Um, me, I never, when I studied history, even though I loved it, I didn't think it had anything to do with me. So much of the history I studied had a lot to do with my family. Um, when the, when the um, slave owners in Virginia lost those tobacco plantations and, and, and what have you, what is it, indigo or whatever it was they had up there, mm -hmm. they had to sell them and they had to get rid of their inventory of slaves or they moved with their slaves to new plantations in the deep south where they heard that sugarcane was really selling at a high price. So they either, that trail of tears that our people went through. So maybe what happened was that my people landed here. Maybe some of my lines stayed over there in Virginia and South Carolina and North Carolina. And maybe that's how you're related to people 
all over Louisiana. It may not be because all of your ancestors left, but pieces of the family. You're picking up pieces of your ancestral family. And I'm just not getting the ones that have traveled over there yet. But I have hope that DNA is that is is going to help us all reconnect. Whereas I'm kind of the flip side of that because Phoebe was so kind to go out of her way to introduce me to some of my white Roan cousins who live my <laughs> I know I should email them more often. I really I feel really I feel really bad about that. Um, so even though they were living in a beautiful house, it's not the it's not the house that the Roan family actually owned in Louisiana, but I believe they don't live too far from where their roots were. Right. And it's, um, a, it's a huge plantation mansion. Yeah. yeah. Um, very haunted one. I had, a, you know, I was kind of quiet. I kept kind of quiet about that experience. That, that was an unusual one. Um, but their family would have taken part of my extended enslaved family down to Louisiana with them. So at some point, I, at least I know the parish that I start looking at. So that's very helpful. That's right. And, um, and you know that you're related to them. And yes. you believe that you're related, you know, so... Well, I want to I want to interrupt us for a moment because we always make sure we say hi to our, our um, viewers and we kind of bring in any questions and answers, you know, any questions or comments that they may have. Mm -hmm. So I want to um, just, you know, say hello to the first person that was up here, Mary Wright. She was um, out of Maryland. Mm -hmm. And um, so hi, Mary. And then we have Martha Marshall, a cousin and She's sorry she's late. <laughs> and then um, Joan Brundy from Texas. And we have Javier Bluefields from Florida. And then Tiffany, who has um, family out of Louisiana as well. So she's really glad that this show is on. And she also pointed out, you know, as we were talking about the GU 272, how they're um, actually from the and I may, may be saying this wrong, but is it Margion, Louisiana? Oh, we okay. say Marigwen. Okay, Marigwen, Louisiana. Mm -hmm. And then um, we have LaMonica, who is a cousin, and also have connections through the GU 272. She's my cousin, and she has, you know, those connections. She says this is good information. And um, Tiffany, again, and then... Let's see. Uh, yeah, hopefully, well we, 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 well, we answered Tiffany's question about the GU-272. Yeah, I think we did answer hers. Um, so we have a lot of, you know, just we want to say hello to everybody. Deborah from Chicago, Tiffany, again, from Ohio. Ohio. So we really wanted just to say hi to everybody and let you know that, you know, Phoebe is here. She is going to answer any and all of your, as many of your questions as she can. So get them together while we're, you know, talking to her and, 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 and letting her know. And then our buddy, Harold, Hey, Harold. <laughs> Very, yes. That's, that's one of our favorite. So um, with that being said, I have another question because Louisiana seems to be so broken up into parishes and, and I don't, I don't know if I'm jumping around when I ask this question, but another thing that I'm, a reason why I'm so glad that you're on here is because there was a book mm -hmm. called The House of Bondage by Octavia Albert. Oh, okay. And her book was based in Louisiana, Huma, 
in Louisiana. Homa. Yes, it was based there. She actually was one, she actually, in my opinion, wrote the first um, slave narrative because basically what she did was she um, spoke with different past enslaved people and told their stories. I want to know how do I go about finding more information about her? Because she had one enslaved person by the name of Charlotte Brooks that I need to find some. I need to know who she I is. Don't know her. What is her name again? Her name is Octavia Albert. She was born, I have it right here. I actually pulled it up. I have a good friend who has a museum in, in Homer. Uh, finding our root. Her name is Margie Stuck Scobie. So um, Margie knows everyone there. Okay. okay. Well, because the, the book itself. Go ahead. Uh, I was going to say the book itself is just so powerful. I mean, it was the story of Charlotte being taken from Virginia, where she yes. Virginia to Louisiana. I hadn't even thought about well, neither Don or I. We spent a long, long time, Don and I, uh, talking about this mm -hmm. about a slave. Who, an enslaved person who was born and reared as a Protestant in Virginia, being transferred uh, to <coughs> and then literally being forced, forced to, to, forced to convert. Forced to convert. Yeah, she was, for, she was forced. Mm -hmm. it was but, say, but they secretly, in the book, they talked about how they secretly still, you know, yes. um, worship in a Protestant way. But that that was just one of the big things. The book, like Brian said, the book was so powerful that she actually talked about things. Mind you, this book, Phoebe, was written in 1890. That's why I was about to ask you, what is the, so that's why I don't know who she is. Because right. The book was written, the book was written, actually the book was published in 1890 by okay. her husband and his daughter in remembrance and in memory of her because she died. But these were her stories, and it was like stories that were being placed in the paper. And when they were placed in the paper, he was hounded to the point where they were like, "Look, you need to make this a book." Yes. And so he turned it into a book, and they they did it in 1890. This woman talked about things that we talk about right now, like how there's a liquor store on every corner or, you know, I mean, she really reared, she reeled all of that kind of stuff. And these things were being said back in the late 1880s. And the, the, the famous, what's that famous comment that said, um, ain't nothing like it. There's, there's no, what is it? Something about a smart nigger. <laughs> and a dumb, you know, and a dumb nigga. I mean, it's actually, and I have to, I wish I had brought the book with me because it it, it captured all of the things that we talk about today mm -hmm. that's going on today. Mm -hmm. This book captured it and it was written in 1890. So I'm really, I really want to find out more about Charlotte because Charlotte mm -hmm. just might be related to my family. Right. And I don't know how to go about doing that. Do you we, do you know who her descendants are? You said there was a daughter. Well, this this is the saddest part, and I think it was Charlotte that this was pertained to. She actually bore a lot of children, but because her enslaver wouldn't allow her to look after the the babies, he would make her go into the field and yeah. work. So not one of her children watch over the babies. 
Not yeah, one, now one of her children lived. One of them drowned because of some type of flood that had happened, and one of them had actually drowned. The book is called it's the Daughter that Survived. Um, the daughter, that daughter is Octavia's daughter, not Charlotte's. Oh, yeah. So um, her name is Laura. Let me see. They put her name in here. Her name is Laura. And um, Laura Albert, because her husband and her husband was a pastor in the in that area. Mm -hmm. So she would just really she gave up teaching. She used to be a teacher. She gave up teaching in Georgia and moved with her husband to Louisiana. He had his own, you know, congregation and she would be at home and just talk with those who used to be enslaved. And they tried so they yeah. totally shared honestly their experiences. Oh my God, did they ever? <laughs> well, I want that book. I'm so I'm gonna have to order mine tomorrow. <laughs> yes, it's an awesome book. It's called The House of Bondage. Um, it is free to read online, but I definitely suggest people buy it. I like, to hold, I like to hold my book. <laughs> yes, I, I I I definitely suggest people buy it because it's one of the strongest books I've ever seen. I've ever ever read in my life. It is it's crazy. To put it this way, I have a strong constitution and there were three points in the book where I just had to put it down and step away because it just upset me that much. Yeah. It was, yeah. It, it's no hold barred. It's but no hold barred. He's absolutely right. There, there was one, there's one where they talk about this man and how they beat him, how he got whipped so badly. Then there's another one about a young girl who was hung by her thumbs I mean, it is, it is awesome. But just as much as it had those, those really gut wrenching stories, it also had the stories that make you say, "Well, wait a minute. Um, they're not speaking the way we see them speaking on TV. <laughs> you know, they're not, they're not talking like that. Or how is it that this man is a, was a general?" in an army and he was black. Really? Like, yes, yep. Yep. yes. She spoke to an ex-enslaved man who became a general in, in an army. the Civil War. And uh, you know what, they don't, that's the thing. She doesn't state which war, she doesn't give the plantation that they were on or- The she doesn't, last she doesn't, name, does she identify uh, that? Does she identify him by a last name? the records and pull his military records i can't remember but it is it is the most amazing book it mm -hmm. is the most amazing book and i was just you know because we were talking to you you're out of louisiana my my issue with louisiana is that i don't know where to start i feel like brand new and i've been researching for 25 years and i feel brand new right. going which, to louisiana which brings me to my question. For someone who knows nothing about Louisiana history, how the mm -hmm. state's kind of, um, I don't want to say constructed, but how the state operates, you know, you have parishes instead of counties and, and all of that. How would you suggest someone actually start? Start. <clears throat> start? Well, really the best way is to work with someone who does research. And I'm not talking about people that charge necessarily. But someone, because there are people that it's just a, it's a, it's a, it's a ministry. It's a mission to help folks, you know, yeah. discover their ancestors. And, and I'm one of those people. 
but I'm not the expert. Um, I just, I know where I start and why I've been successful in finding even my slave ancestors and finding the plantations they stayed on. But it, it helps when you have, you're working with people who have a working knowledge of Louisiana history, Louise, Louisiana history and Louisiana genealogy, how to do research in, in Louisiana. Um, sometimes people say, well, I don't know where my, my people went. They all disappeared. Well, when you understand, for example, in my area, you know, you, you start questioning, well, when did they leave? Oh, it was around 19, in the 1920s, and they were all in Lauraville, Louisiana. Well, it probably happened after that great flood of 1927, which basically flooded the little town out and, and forced people to, to spread out across uh, Iberia Parish and then across the state. Or people might say, I don't know, you know, around the 1920s and 30s and 40s, rather, they all left. They, you know, someone said they went to, to Texas. Well, a lot of people were leaving the fields to go to those refineries in East Texas for better jobs, better lives for their families. So sometimes it helps to work with people who already do the research and they know where to go, you know. And even with the Catholic faith, understanding how the, what's the richness of those Catholic records and knowing how to access them, because the Father Hebert books don't have the actual records in them, but they will tell you, um, if, if uh, for example, there is a, um, a marriage record, and it will say um, Rosa Jean, uh, uh, daughter of uh, Rosa Jean-Louis, daughter of Jean. That's all it will say. And uh, Cora, I mean, and, and Nancy, I'm sorry, uh, Nancy Cato. Well, that's, that would be my three times great-grandmother and her parents were my four times great-grandparents. But you have to know something about what records you'll find in the Catholic Church. And then it tells you what book and what volume you can get the actual records. And then the church, depending on which church it is, will then make copies for you. You know, so my, my best would be to work with someone, someone by phone who can give you direction or guidance for the area. And it's not just Louisiana. Um, research here in Southwest Louisiana is probably going to be very different from researching records in North Louisiana, say Shreveport or, or, or um, I don't know, Ruston or someplace, Natchitoches. Um, I know this area. I find that it's still, if I go to New Orleans, it's basically very similar because I'm still dealing with Catholicism and I'm still dealing with the French and the Spanish. And that's the other thing. A lot of those records, sometimes those records will be in French and they will be in Spanish and sometimes in English, you know. So it that brings, me to, that that brings me to my question. Do we need to like have a translator along with us? Oh, I have the little apps. <laughs> so I have friends who are who are bilingual or trilingual, really. That I, and I try not to impose on them. And I know a little bit of French that I can kind of work my way through because I already know what I'm looking for. And a lot of these uh these records, these these civil records, they're um they're um what's the word I'm looking for? there's a formula, you know, and they all start with something like in the parish of whatever in the year, such and such and such. And the, those may be in French, those, those, that wording. Okay. But in English, it's going to follow the same format, the same, it's a template. 
that those early um, clerk of courts and deputy clerk of courts used. Mm -hmm. You know, so I tend to look for names, and then I know um, I have the right people. Okay. I would I would also imagine that depending on what part of Louisiana you're researching, like South Carolina and North Carolina and Virginia, you're going to have to pay attention because, you know, it started life as a territory yes. and those boundaries yeah. changed. Yeah. So what you might have thought your ancestor was living in Alabama, they might be in Louisiana and vice That's versa. Right. And it's, it's Arkansas to the north. That, you know, those, that boundary went, you know, went back and forth. Well, so I wait a minute, so wait a minute. Y'all telling me that it's the same as South Carolina, that sometimes the boundaries were so deep in, like oh, with South Carolina and Georgia, there was at one point parts of Alabama that was a part of Louisiana? Well, Louisiana extended from the little shoe that we are now all the way up to the Canadian border during, you know, with the, with the, um, the Louisiana Purchase. And it was broken up into all these little states. But that's not the thing that I'm most concerned about, that, that people get out of this discussion. The boundary within the state changed. Here in, here where I am, there, I live in New Iberia, Louisiana, and we, don't, we have parishes, not counties. So my parish is called Iberia Parish. Well, Iberia Parish didn't exist during slavery. So I, I find very few slave records at the New Iberia Courthouse or the Iberia Parish Courthouse. There are some, but very few. When I, want, when I study my ancestors, like I just went to uh, the St. Martin Parish Library, uh, uh, um, Clerk of Courts office just a few days ago, I go there to the St. Martin, which is like maybe a little north and east of us, to the St. Martin, it's about 10 minutes away, St. Martin Parish Courthouse. Or I go to what's called the St. Mary Parish, the St. Mary Parish Courthouse, because Iberia Parish was 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 uh, created from parts of St. Martin, parts of um, of St. Mary, parts of Vermilion Parish, which is also adjacent to us. So these, and maybe a little bit of of what's called Lafayette Parish, a tiny bit. But all of that was considered way back during the antebellum times as the Atakapa district. Right. And there were lots of plantations on the bayou and the, nothing but, you know, sugarcane fields and maybe a co little cotton and indigo. So in that instance, is it worth, it not what well, it's not worth, you would have to understand the evolution of the different parishes, mm -hmm. identifying yes. oldest parish, and then I guess identifying where the- no, Understand the evolution of the area that you're researching. For example, if somebody says all my ancestors were in Iberia and I'm looking for them as slaves, they can't come to New Iberia and do an adequate search. That's right. why I said at the beginning, you know, connect with someone from this area who does research, who can yeah. guide, who can you guide. You definitely yeah. have to. Yeah. And then, you know, people don't have to spend a whole, because there are people that do this just because it's something that they want to do to help. I want to help people reconnect with their ancestors. Right. If I wanted to work, I'd have continued working to make money. So for me, it's about mm -hmm. it's about helping. And again, that the extra wrinkle is going to be like you know, we were talking about enslaved people being sold down the river from the northern part of the south into the you know into Louisiana. You've got people coming in from Haiti. You have yeah, that's the other thing. From San Domingo, from you know, from all those little Caribbean islands. And they, they influence the culture that you see in this area because uh, during the, that's another thing. I, I loved studying about the Haitian revolt when I was a child. Again, didn't think it had anything to do with us. 
we have um, the there are families, the white slave owning families, and their slaves. Sometimes people want to call them indentured servants, but that's bogus. And sometimes yeah. you want to call them workers and servants. They were they were enslaved. They had no rights. But anyway, that's a different story. But a lot of those families following Toussaint's um, uh, takeover of the island, they escaped and they came to Louisiana by way of New Orleans. And a lot of them made their way up the bayou and established um, homes along the Bayou Tesh, which is this bayou that connects our area all the way to New Orleans. So um, boat travel was a, was a very um, popular way to, to move uh, across the state during that time. But they brought their slaves with them. I have not yet been able to confirm that I'm descended from any of them, but it's very likely. It's very likely. Hmm. So we have that DNA that that that's showing up in some of the uh, the areas, the Caribbean areas. So, so um, I... let's talk about the the Lake Comite. Mm -hmm. that's, that's a state genealogy group of okay. people who are interested in studying genealogy. Okay, how would I'm getting ready to put that website up? Okay. Why don't you talk a little bit about that and and tell us something about that? And I want to remember to talk about my organization a little bit too. Yes. Um, okay, so I actually stumbled across that organization years ago, even before I retired, Le Comité. And Judy says, Le Comité des Archives de la Louisiane. I'm probably butchering it because she's very fluent in French. I was saying Les, Les Archives. But anyway, it's the archives. It's the archives committee of Louisiana. It's a, um, our group. And uh, it's designed, its mission is to study the history, the genealogy of Louisiana, to support people who's, who, are, who are passionate about genealogy. And even, it's, it's inclusive, because every summer there is a, uh, a genealogy um, meeting, or, or, um, which is what you were invited to, Brian, a, a conference um, that studies um, the, the genealogy of African Americans in Louisiana, people who want to study the, uh, the, the history of Blacks in Louisiana, but by way of lineage. So we bring in speakers uh, to, to talk about that and to teach the audience uh, how to do their own research, how to, how to research uh, their, 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 uh, their ancestors who, uh, who lived in Louisiana, who may have been born in Louisiana, and especially those who may have been born in slavery. Um, it's um, a lot, there's a, a connection to the state archives in Baton Rouge, where a lot of uh, what we do, um, we make donations to the state archives group. And uh, we have people who have been involved in, 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 in researching family history in Louisiana, genealogy in Louisiana for a long time, who are members and founders of that organization. So I was just lucky enough to, to, to discover it, you know, by accident a few years ago. So, okay. And, and, and the um, my like I started telling you, my organization came about because I saw these Jim Crow era artifacts that misrepresented our history. It's almost as if there were no black professionals. I even came across two books, maybe three now that I'm thinking about it. One of them talked about the veterans of the, the uh, of uh, World War One from Iberia Parish. And all white, right? And another one was I uh, had a big. It was a big book 
with the pictures of the veterans of Iberia Parish from World War II, all white. So here's my problem, as I'm sure it's, it's obvious to everyone listening to me. There were so many Blacks who fought in those wars. And when you ignore the history, when you, you eliminate the history, now I understand that that's what they did back during Jim Crow. They separated our histories, they suppressed our history. But when you, when you suppress the history of veterans, that means they never served. You, that means they didn't exist. That means it's a lie that Blacks served in the military, served in the wars. My father was a Korean veteran. My husband was a veteran of, of a Navy veteran of Vietnam. So that means that from the antebellum period to the end of Jim Crow, which basically tracks the Civil War, Spanish-American War, World War I, World War II, Korea, and the Vietnam War, Blacks did not serve. And that is a, that's such an untruth. If you rely just on, and I'm not, my argument has not been really to remove those books from the library, but the, the burden is on my organization, people like me, people like, you know, people who are listening to what I'm saying. We have to do our own research. And right next to those books of Jim Crow that basically wipe out the history of Black men and women who serve, there should be books written today that show the faces of those Black veterans or those Black physicians. Um, we've begun to do this um, just a couple of weekends ago. I went to one of the largest historically Black cemeteries here in our area, and I brought one of the, the VA group um, leaders who is white. He happens to be white. And um, he and I, we've been talking about what are we going to do? We need to put, because we need to put flags, for example, on the graves of these, of these men in these black cemeteries. So people passing could see them. That's a, that's, a, that's a visual reminder or acknowledgement of this history. We went in the cemetery. There were even some men who were killed in action. So their sacrifice was wiped out by these Jim Crow texts that are in our libraries. And when, when we went in the, in, in the cemetery, it was so dense with military graves, military markers. And my friend, uh, Leslie said, Phoebe, is this, he said, you sure this is not a military graveyard? Because that's how dense it was wow. with, with markers, headstones of men who served across all these different wars. So to me, we needed an organization such as our society that would do the research, that would educate the community on the true history of this community. And the fact that African-Americans were involved in all kinds of aspects that contributed to, what, to our community today, including we had the young lady who had been the, the first black doctor, her father was a senator. But because we don't understand reconstruction and how it, how it worked out in this area, we didn't know that we also had a black um, clerk of court until mm. I started doing this research. The people in the clerk of court's office who are my friends, they said, well, no, we've never had. And I brought the evidence and then the clerk and I met and he showed me a, a, a record he had that said this man had been our first black clerk of court and we're gonna put his picture in the courthouse. So what we're doing as an organization to teach the community about this rich and long history, inclusive history, is we are um, doing the research and we are going to put up commemorative markers provided by the state. Now we have to purchase them at about $2,000 each. But each year, this first year, we put up one dedicated to Dr. Wakefield Paye, 
this year coming, this 2019, we're going to put up two. And next year we have set, every year we're going to put up markers because those markers will be physical reminders of blacks in this community historically contributing to our history. And so, the books are going to be written. So let me ask you this question. I know you said the books are going to be written, mm -hmm. but that doesn't stop people from grabbing the books that they already know. That's okay. They can and, do and, and so how do you so then how do you plan on directing them to the ones that that are there that's speaking the these truths and and making sure because I, I realized yesterday when you know when we the three of us were doing our tech check mm -hmm. that Corey and I have we the three of us in total have the same thought process. Yes. I mean we really have that same thought process and the goal is to educate. That's exactly not to, right. not to necessarily block out anything because blocking out has already be, been done. We've been there. We've done that. Now it's just about straight education right. and, and just and making sure everybody gets the right information. But do you think that making your own book, knowing mm -hmm. that in the African-American in, in our in our own society and, and just this society as as a whole, they don't they don't come to us like that. They don't come to black people like that. They're gonna go to what they're already been taught and they're gonna say, no, this is true. This is somebody that's doing that. So how do you why why not update the information that's already in the books without taking out their without taking out their stuff, just making it an addition. Well, let me explain a couple of things. One, a lot of the books that I told you are in the library. They were self-made little books that people type themselves and put yeah. plastic wrapping around the little spirals. Okay, those are, I'm talking about, you know, um, doing good work based on primary information, primary sources of evidence, and submitting it for publication to a publisher. Like the University of Louisiana has the Center for Louisiana Studies, and this is the kind of of, of um, text that they look to publish. It's, and I'm talking about good text. The idea too that people want come to us because we are people of color, we're black, that doesn't fly anymore. Now, now wait, let me back up. If you have someone who is um, that racist in their, I can't help them. I'm not even doing this for them because they already have their own agenda and I don't waste my time with people like that. But if you have people who want the truth, if they want the truth, then what they're going to do is look at good research. They're going to see what kind of sources back up this re these, these claims. And that's what people do. Um, they look for truth and they look for evidence. And that's what we are providing. The other thing is this organization is not a black organization. We have a board, for example, we have an organization of uh, general members that's multiracial. And we have a board that's multiracial. Several of our, uh, our, our uh, board members are university professors um, who, again, and I intentionally wanted that presence because I didn't want us to get, get off into, well, my grandmama said X. You know how I started out telling you about what I grew up on? Right. I know what my grandmother and my grandfather told me because that, a lot of that's oral history and things get changed as time goes on and memories kind of dim. So you got to find evidence. And I have been fortunate to find evidence. Sometimes I didn't even realize there was evidence, for example, to 
to, to I grew up hearing about the black doctors who were beaten in 1944 and thrown out of Iberia. What little tiny rural community had four black doctors? One was a dentist, very few. But within a day of each other, Iberia lost them all because of Jim Crow era violence. These men were advocating for the, the, the black GIs who were returning with their GI bills and they wanted to, to get skill training as welders. They didn't want to return to the sugarcane field as field hands. And they were used to being treated as men. So it started a whole lot of commotion in town, resulted in the NAACP coming. And that was that, that started a whole lot, which resulted in those doctors being kidnapped, some of them and being beaten and thrown out of, out of New Iberia. So I heard those stories, but guess what? They're written about. There's documentation of all. The FBI has a file on all of this. Wow. And there's a researcher who has been who who has who's considered to be the premier researcher of this event. We're bringing him here next year. Well, not next year. This year, this fall, uh, to uh, to participate to teach the community the facts about the case. So so you understand. We can talk about what we heard and what grandmother told us, but until you have proof. You can show me evidence. It's just a story. So the community, for those people who want to learn the truth and who want to up their cultural IQ, they come to these sessions and we get a lot of attendance. And um, my experience with the Lake Comité was, um, it was brilliant. Just such a really engaged group of people. And you both in your different ways have raised a really interesting point. And I just wanted to kind of underline it and make sure that no one was confused about it. We are all three of us in a very similar mindset. And I think all of our guests that come on the show were all of a similar mindset. We are not looking to replace white history with black history. Right. Oh, is a level playing field. Yes. You know, but, but, but there's no such thing as white history and black history. To me, it's yeah. history. And as yeah. I tell the community here, it's our shared history. When I talk about the black doctors who were beaten, don't put your head down in shame. You didn't do it. But it's our it's the history of New Iberia. And some of the history is pretty, as I tell everyone, and some of it is not so pretty. We're not all we're all very proud of that marker, that huge, beautiful state marker commemorating Dr. Emma Wakefield Paye. But we're not going to be as proud of that marker commemorating that 1944 incident. But it happened. And there are families that were affected. There were communities within this community that were affected by it. And we cannot hide from our history. That's not the way an intelligent people moves forward if we want to continue to develop as a community. So that's all, awesome. I, all mm -hmm. I can say to people is buckle up because it may seem like a lot of black history is going to be hitting people all at once, but it's only because it's been suppressed for four hundred Intentional, not just here, where you're from, where you're from, it was hidden all over the deep south. Yes, and those—I yeah. guess we shouldn't talk about the markers, huh? But those, those, those Confederate monuments and everything—that's why people are so confused about what those monuments really stand for. Yeah. All that had to do with suppression. It had huh. to do with 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 the segregationists of the time making a concerted, a, a, a conscious decision. Yeah, you're absolutely right. So I have a question from one of our um, one of our uh, viewers. Lisa Wade said, "Most of my ancestors." Let me put it up. She said, "Most of my ancestors come from 
Mm. Uh, I can't. The Royals are not too parish. Okay, thank you. <laughs> and it says the towns they lived in were Evergreen, Bunky, Cheneyville, and Opelika. I plan to visit. Can you suggest any research places in this area? Uh, yeah. Um, those are good places to start. Saint, okay, Opelousas is, and I'm not sure about Bunky. Bunky may be also, but um, um, Opelousas is part of um, Saint Landry Parish. Okay, so and I hope she can hear me. It's part of Saint Landry Parish, which is very similar to the area I'm in. So you have this very strong French influence. And you go, if you want, I, I started online with finding as many records as I could. So you go to the, um, you get your records, you, you get your, 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 your sources, and you go to the clerk of court's uh, office if you're going to do a visit to, uh, to, to, to these areas. The clerks of court offices are very helpful. In Opelousas, I'm going to give you this lady's name. She's probably going to say, Phoebe, what are you doing? But this, there is a lady, a good friend of mine, who's helped me to develop and to grow. Her name is Cindy Hoffmeister. And Cindy actually works with um, one of those family, the Family um, History Center. That's, that's uh, it's run by the, um, um, the Mormon Church. And um, y'all, do y'all have those centers where you are? Yes. I have one in Boston. Mm -hmm. Yes. Phenomenal. I mean, she has spent so much time just tutoring me in how to do certain searches, for example, in the courthouses. She was also trained as what's called a petroleum landman. Are you familiar with that term? Oh, what is it? A petroleum landman. Okay, because this is an area that, that for a long, 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 long time was um, based on oil and gas industry. I am familiar with it. Okay, so there are a lot of people who made their money um, by not just drilling the oil, but somebody had to find the oil. But before that, somebody had to figure out who owned the property where the oil was. Yeah. To so the petroleum, the uh, landmen, Cindy's one, meaning she's very trained. She's highly trained as a researcher to go into courthouses. But then she just, she began to combine that profession with her love of genealogy and her dedication to helping African-Americans connect with their ancestors. And she's Caucasian. She, it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a ministry, I think, with Cindy to help. Wow. So if anyone, I can't give you, and I, I won't give you her contact information, but it's easy enough to get it. If they contact the, um, there's the St. Landry, um, oh, I forget it's the exact name, but there's a St. Landry, um, they have a genealogy society in St. Landry Parish. So maybe if they can Google the, the St. Landry Parish Genealogy Society, I think it has like maybe the Imperial St. Landry Genealogy Group. Uh, and just call someone with that group. They can give you Cindy Hoffmeister's phone number. Um, but I think you can Google her name and it she'll pop up. Okay. You know. And then we have another um, question from, well, I don't think it's necessarily a question. It's more mm -hmm. or less something that she's going through that I will probably turn into a question. <laughs> <laughs> um, Carla Holloway, she says, my mother has many matches from St. John's Baptist, from St. From John's the Baptist, the German coast surnames. My son-in-law, Camilla. 
what is this? Okay, Snyder and Russell. Snyder and Russell. And okay, she said those are her brick walls. Girl, I feel like I need to learn English again. <laughs> well, for sure, the Schneider is German, I think, and the Russell is French, I think. So she would have. Um, let's see. How, uh, I was about to say, um, and that's also if y'all have heard of the Whitney Plantation. Yes. Yes, that's that's that area where the Whitney Plantation is. It's it's actually in what's called Wallace, Louisiana, but. It's basically in, in, in that general area. Um, I'm trying to think. Um, it's probably going to be the same thing to maybe if she's going to physically visit there to end up, and I'm going to say end up at the, at the St. John Courthouse, Clerk of Court's office to research her family records. And the thing about the records is that I love, that's just so many stories I could tell, is... Um, <laughs> You check, you can find, you, you'll find our ancestors, our people in mortgage records, believe it or not. Yeah. There was one man who he was indebted to everybody and he had to, he took out a, he had, he took out a mortgage on, on, on his property, including his slaves. Um, so you'll find us listed in mortgage records and other conveyance type records. Um, um, sometimes people, um, or in the probate records, that's my favorite. When the slave owners died, certainly before emancipation, they listed every one, you know, you understand that, or everything that they owned, including their human being things, right? So um, that's why I love going to the courthouses. But it's good when you, you have to have a, 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 um, a game plan. You have to know wh what names you're researching when you go there. And you have to understand what records are available in the courthouse. And again, like I said, people tend to think that, well, if I go to the courthouse and just look in the conveyance records, then that's it. I had been looking for my four times great-grandmother, just as a quick example. And I've gone to New Orleans, to the notarial archives, and I've just looked for her because the family story was that she was sold away from the family. Her name was Nancy Cato. She was sold from her family because it was a punishment for burning, trying to burn the, the, the owner's sugarcane field down. Well, that wasn't true. And I'll tell you why I know it. But anyway, she was sold from the family, but just two or three, maybe a few days ago, I was with someone helping them do some research in St. Martinville. And I decided to look in the suits, you know, the lawsuits, the, the, the indices for suits. And I looked for the woman who, by name who I knew owned her and her daughters. One of her daughters was my three times great grandmother. And the husband, the husband had pages where he was being sued by people. So that helped. But then I saw where the wife, Mary Asper C. Broussard, or Sonoba, suing him because she was divorcing him. And in her suit, she was naming all her property that she wanted. She named all the, 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 the property. My, my four times great grandmother and her two little girls, one was five and one was seven, and her son, Sylvester, who was, who was about, I'm thinking 12 years old, they were listed as the property that, that were involved in this suit that they were arguing or fighting over, right? So I had not found her until then. And then we didn't know what happened to her. There was a later suit and um, like for another case, 
where we were told, I read that um, she died. She was actually sold to someone in New Orleans, but she died before, long before the Civil War. They called it the war between the states, but before the Civil War. Yes, and I, I, no, one, no one was able to say who bought her, and that's my mission. I've been trying to find out who bought uh, Nancy and what happened. How did she die? And maybe did she have other children once she got to New Orleans? You know. But again, my point is, don't just go into those, those courthouses with blinders on. There are all kinds of records, indices that they have that we can, we can, we can research. And sometimes it's right in front of us. This is nope. so awesome. Mm -hmm. And I'm actually really glad that you said that because the theme over the last couple of shows has really been about helping people format really good, robust research strategies. Yes. Yeah. Which is basically what you're advising. Already have your research strategy worked out, what your goals are, what you, you know, the, the specific answers to specific questions right. that you have. Because otherwise, I can imagine just walking into a courthouse. I mean, you're just overwhelmed with records. There are records everywhere. And the courthouses like St. Landry Parish, like um, St. Martin Parish in particular, where you may encounter two or three different languages, it will just blow you away. And if you're not prepared, you know, yeah. it's, 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 it's overwhelming. Now, the good thing is the people that I have encountered have been very nice and very helpful. The other thing I want to say is that whereas I used to um, walk out of the courthouse having written a check or whatever for 200 plus dollars for records because I just couldn't leave them, you can now, in our area now, um, purchase a subscription. So you can actually do your research at home. Wow. But, but it's like, well, it depends. It, it's on how much you, you're having the research. Um, for one day, it's like 20 or $25 which means I stay up all night long <laughs> and for, or you can, you can do it for a month. And I think it's like 120 or 125. So I opted for the month and, but it's, you have to be sure that you have the time to sit and do this. Right. For, for our area, the courthouses I'm talking about, you can't just print out freely. There's a dollar per page charge if you print, but I don't need to print if I have, if I can see the record and I have time to actually do the typing of the information. Right. Yeah. So that actually points to this next person's comment, and I'm not even going to try to read it because it's words. I see some of the words. Yeah. <laughs> and so, um, but can she, are any of those courthouses connected to some of the places that LaMonica has brought up on in this particular? You see, I'm because saying, she's trying to figure you know, out, you know, like what's the best strategy. Yeah. You see, some of these, like I know, I know these, these, I, I know these words, like Avoyles, Franklin, Catahoula, that's St. Martin, Concordia, I'm not as familiar with, Wachita, Richland, Tensas, and West Feliciana parishes. Those are not as close to, those are not near here. But the first three are um, Franklin, and, uh, Franklin is in St. Mary Parish, which is very close to here. Um, yeah, the main thing, if I were her, let me back up. I like to start with Ancestry because I have my subscription. Uh -huh. so and and my daughter's much more successful than I am with Family Search, for example. But um, I like to get as much information as I can from those trees and let those algorithms work for me so that they can automatically 
populate my trees so I can have more names to work with. Um, but um, as much as I can, um, the, the things like death certificates, which are very important you know, to, to us in our research, um, you can find those online. In Louisiana, you can't find the full death certificate. You'll get an index. index. But if you go to one of those family uh, history centers, like I mentioned earlier, you can actually print them out online without having to go to Baton Rouge to the state archive, which yeah. until recently, that's what we had to do. But um, for her, again, I think if she doesn't live here in Louisiana, I would get someone, I would try to work with someone who is familiar with the research and they can contact us, our organization. Um, it's usually me if they're in if if they're, if they're researching the um, the parishes that I'm I'm working in, and if not, I can give them the names of people I'm aware of. You know, there's sort of a network with these different genealogy groups. Like Saint Landry has a genealogy group, and they have really great um, genealogists that that are attached to that organization. Um, so we could refer them to someone. Or they can go online and look for a genealogy group in the area, just do a Google search and just call the group and see who can give them assistance. Yeah. And that, to that I would also recommend I would also recommend newspapers, depending on what time period you're looking at. If it's yeah. you know, especially after emancipation, you've got newspaper clippings. You have newspapers.com. Love newspapers.com. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> Not always, you know, but again, it's a starting point. Me too. <laughs> and that y'all know that there's for people who don't want to worry about the spending the extra money because you know this gets expensive, as we know. Chroniclingamerica.com. You know, yeah. that has to free. So people, people who don't necessarily, you know, want to spend all this money on um uh, and on, on ancestral research, you can go to familysearch.org and set up, you know, do your research. And sometimes the same information you find on Ancestry is also on FamilySearch.org. Um, not sometimes, a lot of times. And um, I know our library has Ancestry.com for free, as well as some of these other online uh, sources for free yeah. that people can use. There's also the Freedman Bank Record, the, the, the Freedman yes. Bureau Records, which again, brilliant research, resource on Family Search, completely free. But I have been waiting, Brian, since I heard you talk about the cohabitation records. The ones from my area, evidently, either they don't exist or they haven't been released. Hmm. Because you talked about how yep. those records have information about who was living in the home, you yep. know, uh, their 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 parents maybe, and when, uh, they, were, when not, they were married. Yes. Yes. So, but some of the records, and, I, and that's the other thing I found, you keep going back to check because they're always updating records. Well, actually, it's the Church of Latter-day Saints that's yes. responsible for all of those records. It might be worth just sending them an email to say, hi, you know, I'm really, I'm waiting for these to, to happen for Louisiana. That's an excellent um, idea. Yeah. And I'll start with my friend, Cindy. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> listening. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, this show has just been so um, 
It is well past five o'clock. And as much as I don't want to stop, I, yeah, I know. <laughs> I don't want to stop. I want to keep going because there's so much different stuff. Um, so we have placed up on the, on our comments line your your particular organization's um, website. We've um, put up the website for the archives in, in Louisiana as well. Is there any other things that you would like us to cover and make sure that everybody knows about? Because the great thing about our shows is that they are on demand YouTube, so they can always be you know replayed if necessary. I don't know. I think people sometimes say, well, how did you find out, find your slave ancestors? Well, one, I already knew a lot of them. But um, I'll give you an example. One, my, my maternal grandmother, um, she, um, she, they all grew up in this little area, in the country, we called it. And they grew up with all their first cousins and the grandparents. Well, the, the set of grandparents, both grandparents um, that they grew up around have been slaves. And what's interesting is the grandfathers had, were Civil War veterans. They fought, uh, they fought at uh, Fort Hudson uh, above uh, Baton Rouge. So there's history right there. But these grandfathers, one of them, Alphonse Manuel, I pulled, I, I think I have maybe five, maybe six grand ancestral grandfathers who were in the war, in the Civil War. I pulled their pension records, which was just a, a, a treasure trove of information for me. And it confirmed things and it told me things, informed me of things I didn't even know, like how some of my family members got their names even. But my, my, um, my uh, ancestral grandfather, you know, they they um, they talk they talk very rarely. These these old people talk very rarely about their time as slaves. I met a lady, and I want to come back to that because I want to tell you what he said about slavery. I met a wonderful lady through ancestry. She actually contacted me because I put on the bulletin board if anyone knew anything about Eugene Henry Wallet, I was very interested in in, in meeting them because he had owned my manual. I knew that, owned my manual family of, uh, of Iberia. And this lady, maybe a couple of years later, contacted me and I, it was just out of the blue. Wonderful, wonderful lady. She's a, a published author. I actually went to Oregon and visited with her and her wonderful husband before he passed for a week. And she shared plantation records. She shared a picture of one of my aunts, my three times great aunt, who was this grandfather's sister. Oh. She was sitting between these two very pale white children because she was the nanny. So after slavery ended, she continued to work for this family. The lady's memory is still alive in this family. I even met an elderly cousin in New Orleans. He said, oh yeah, I, was, I remember Aunt Kate. I said, well, how can you remember? He said, no, they just talked about her a lot. So her memory was still kept alive by this particular family. Mm. So this, this lady I met who I really loved dearly, she even had my aunt's furniture that she wrote in her memoir that she was going to return to the family through me. That'll eventually happen one day. Well, she, um, she said that I think that there was just such a love and, you know, between Kate and she went on and on. But maybe there was a love between Kate and her particular great-great-grandfather and great-great-grandmother. But when Kate's brother, who was my two-times great-grandfather, was badgered by his children to tell them about slavery and he would refuse. And then finally, one of my cousins said he gave in. 
and he, and he only spoke French. And she said that her, her aunt, who was one of the youngest daughters, said he was blind, said he would hit the ground and uh, for emphasis. And he said slavery was hell. Uh. And interesting how with the 21st century lens, my friend and I, from, from the lady from Oregon, we can talk about you know, this, she being the child, the descendant of the slaveholders, and me being the descendant of the slaves. And there's no anger, no animosity whatsoever. But she and I, at one point, she wanted us to collaborate to do a book together. And I told her, I can't do it. I cannot presume to write my people's story because I would, would never want to misrepresent their experience. Right. When that, she had a different because they loved Aunt Kate. But that cousin who told me the story of my great-great-grandfather, him getting agitated and saying in French, slavery was hell, I have to honor their experiences. I can't romanticize what they went through. Right. That's a really interesting point because I think a lot of Americans, because they mm -hmm. think slavery happened in the 1800s, as soon as they see the, the number is one in eight, oh, that, that's ancient history. But it's not. I have a, you know, but I had two great grandmothers who lived to be well over a hundred years old. Right. Their parents were slaves. Yeah. And those stories so they, handed down. Yeah. So they grew up with people who, all of them, had been formerly enslaved people. So even though my great grandmothers themselves were never slaves, they grew up hearing those stories, or, or even worse, seeing the evidence. You know, the the, the marks facts and all the rest of it seeing the evidence. Oh, why does right. Uncle why does Uncle Dave have whip marks on his bags? Or why what are those stars? Yeah. Yeah. And it's so funny because even for me, I mean, I'm I'll be 47 in March. Mm -hmm. And my I never got to meet my grandparents because they were born in the 1890s. Really? My, yeah. My grandparents were born in 1894 and 1898. Oh. So their grandparents were born in slavery. Yes. You know, I mean, it, it was their grandparents. My grandfather's grandmother was not only was she enslaved, but she was a breeder. Yes. So, yeah, right. Yeah. So it, that's because, but I, you know, these people, this because they had all of these children. They come from this big, long line of families where it just it was so many of them that it was easy for them to be born during that time period, whereas their parents were born at the cusp of the Civil War. Yes. So one of my great grandparents were born in 1865. My great grandparent, 67. You know, these are the, and it's just a great grandparent. Yes. So technically, I'm only like a generation or two removed. That's what I was thinking. Yeah, I'm not far from it, and I'm 47 years old. History. Yeah, and I'm and I'm not I'm not far from it. So it's a it, you know it's really it's really um a, a great thing to be able to do this kind of research and then start to actually learn and see your connection where this was something that was kept from you as a child throughout schooling. You sit there, and I've said this many times before on our shows. Now, when I think about history, because I always liked history. I did too. I never had an issue with it. I, I found it to be very interesting. But it would be it would have been so much more interesting if you told me everything. Because like, 
his That's the way I look at it. And yeah, you know, it's, it's just so much in it. It's personal. Even though they're now in their 30s, they honor this history. Right. And now I feel as if, you know, I'm on a board of a museum. And guess what? It's a living history museum. On that, in, on the grounds of that museum is a house that one of my ancestors actually uh, worked at. It was one of the plantation houses that they moved to this, to this uh, campus. And so it's so funny because I'm a member of this board, but my ancestors actually, they went through those doors. They actually cleaned up either in or outside of the, the, the house. So I take my responsibilities very seriously to my ancestors that yeah. I don't misrepresent any of their experiences. I agree. Yeah. So. Well, thank you, you know, so, so much. So, this yeah, this, I, was, this, this was, was awesome. awesome. Thank this, this was an awesome show. I mean, we literally gone into like 5.30 and I knew it was going to go at least an hour and a half. I knew it. Um, next week's show, no, we're well, not next week. Um, our next show will be with um, Nathan <clears throat> Kemp. Nathan Kemp is one of my cousins and she's actually one of my mentors as well. She was one of the first people that helped me through my genealogical journey we first found out we were related by marriage through my grandmother's sister and her one of her i think grandfathers and then later once the dna came back we ended up finding out we were second cousins wow in more more than one way in In more more than than one way way. yeah in louisiana uh, well, you know what? We believe she she might even have a connection there too. But wow. it sounds like Louisiana, and and I'm gonna say it like this: It sounds like Louisiana as the state, and just Edgefield is just like <laughs> I believe it <laughs> because believe it. they are. You know, it's rich with history. Edgefield is rich with history. Um, they they were very fortunate to not have any of their records burned. So during, and, you know, as when the war between the states ended, so that was something that was just awesome in itself. And I mean, it's just so much. Yes, it's just so much there that people can and can get. And I'm really glad and honored that my mom's entire line is from that area. And I don't. That makes it. Yeah, it makes it somewhat. Easy. I, can't, I can't say all the way, but it makes it somewhat easy. What, you know, the endogamy is strong there. Yes. It is, it is, it is extremely extremely strong there, but nevertheless, it is some, it is one of the reasons why it makes it, you know, kind of easy, but we thank you so much, Phoebe, and we hope that we can, you know, maybe have you back and talk some more about your particular um yes this is awesome you were right brian i said trust you have a question real quick is where is the eastland shore have you ever heard that term eastland shore i thought it was like reference to virginia or maryland eastern it's eastern shore i need to check because i found a record last night where the the grandfather supposedly came from in his obituary. They put Eastland Shore, and wow. I don't know isn't what that, that around, is. Isn't that around the Chesapeake? I don't know. It, that's what I'm thinking about. And if it is, then that's Eastern, not Eastland. It, it, it was Eastern Shore. That's but what I'm asking because I know Eastland. 
Well, what we're gonna do is we we don't want you to hang up. We want you to stay on, but we're gonna um we're gonna sign off so that you and I we can you know continue to talk because this is just great. I'm sorry you guys can't hear it. <laughs> but we're gonna sign off um today. So thank you so much for um being a part of this. Brian, is there any anything you wanna add? Nope. Thank you for us sharing your Sunday with us. Yes, and we will see you guys on Sunday in March. Bye. Bye. <laughs>